0: on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine.
1: I think that in terms of being an indigenous person, and in terms of masculinity, we're all unfortunately subject to not only the struggle that every man goes through in trying to find himself uh, and, and work out a way that is satisfying and ethical and useful and good, but also doing that in a colonial context where this pressing need to defend ourselves from the assault of colonialism, psychologically, physically, spiritually, and also the, the erasure of any kind of positive, healthy, um, useful to our own community notion of what it is to be a man. And so the, the process of, of surviving and empowering and living out your masculinity in that environment is very messy.
0: What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Yage Alfred, an Indigenous scholar and activist. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including Best Column Writing for the Native American Journalists Association, as well as a National Aboriginal Achievement Award. Yage is an author, governance consultant and former university professor known for his keen focus and commentary on indigenous resurgence and decolonization. In our conversation today, he shares of his early years as a young man in the U.S. Marine Corps and what he learned about being a warrior in a dominator system. He explores the origin cosmology of the Mohawk peoples and the capacity to find harmony within a complex system and he reflects on fathering his three sons and how his understanding of leadership has shifted over the decades. Finally, on the question of toxic masculinity, he names the necessity for the soil of rooted community to live true accountability, as there is no good man without the health of the land. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of activists, artists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. If you wish to dive deeper into the themes and practices explored in this podcast, head over to themythicmasculine.com and click Network to claim your free trial. And now, enjoy my conversation with Yage, Alfred. Welcome, Gay, Alfred, to the show.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's great to be here.
0: I love to begin my interviews by asking the guests to share a little of uh, where they are in this moment, um, geographically, spiritually, uh, anything that you know feels to be spoken.
1: All right. Well, I'm talking to you from Lekwungen Territory, which is uh, also known as uh, Victoria, British Columbia. It's a place that. Uh, I live, I have my sons who live here and, uh, two sons that, that live in Victoria and one's 13 and one's 24. I have a granddaughter, a grandson on the way. And I also have one son who lives in, in Montreal and works in Montreal. And this is my, my West Coast base. I also consider, and in fact, uh, Gonawage. Mohawk Reserve outside of uh, Montreal is, uh, is my true home. And I kind of go back and forth between the two for work and life. Uh, That's, that's where I am geographically, uh, spiritually and mentally. I'm actually doing really good. Um, sometimes feel guilty for saying that, um, given COVID. And I know and I acknowledge that, you know, a lot of people are suffering and not doing well. And, you know, of course I've felt that myself. Uh, everybody. And the whole world I think is has felt uh the effects of the confinement and the anxiety and all that kind of stuff. But uh I'm doing really good. Thanks for asking. Works going works going good and I have a new love in my life, and she's here with me, and uh my sons are are doing really well, and so uh I have a lot to be thankful for and and uh and I'm just grateful. Although I'm looking forward to to getting back to travel and all the things that people like to do when uh, when when all the restrictions from covid are over too
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. speaking of travel as well i know you know in the, in the before time i understand you traveled quite a bit with work and and building relationship and the rest and i'd love for you to share just a little of, of the work that you do you do and have done you know over the last few decades
1: all right um well i started out uh on the path that i'm on now um, in 1987, before 1987, I was a, a younger man <laughs> and, uh, I had been in uh, the United States Marine Corps as a young man. I joined when I was 17. And so, and then I left and went to boot camp when, as soon as I turned 18 years old. So between 18 and 21, uh, I was an infantry man in the United States Marine Corps. And, uh, that was my first kind of like formative experience work wise and, and leaving my own family and, and community and getting out there into the wider world and starting experiencing things. And then I came back and I, I was working in my own home community for a while, various jobs, uh, security guard for a cigarette industry, <laughs> uh, um, various odd jobs. And then I, I was a bank teller for a while. And then, uh, I, I consider this a fortunate experience. Uh, I, I ran into a man who passed away, who became my mentor for, for many years, uh, Arno Goodleaf, his name was. And uh, he, he worked in uh, the community government that we have. It's called the Mohawk Council of Kahnawake, our band council. And uh, him and a, a person who was on council at the time as a chief and who later became very influential to me as well. Some people may know him from his previous life as well. We can talk about that later. His name is Billy Two Rivers, and uh, he's an elder in, in our community. And they were both working on um, Developing our community's relationship with the federal and provincial government. So it was kind of like the early days of self government for, for First Nations in, in Canada. And, uh, they hired me as a assistant researcher, writer. And I was still doing my bachelor's degree at Concordia University at the time in political science and history. And, uh, yeah, I started off there. And, uh, ever since I've been kind of combining uh, real world involvement in politics in First Nations communities, with academic studies and scholarship, and so um, I, I I worked in Ganwague. I got my bachelor's degree, and then after that, I uh, I went to Cornell University and did my masters and my doctorate, and uh, I did my my PhD in uh, comparative government, political theory, and studied uh, the evolution of Mohawk governance. In Kahnawake. And uh my my book was published soon after. Uh I got my PhD a year later, uh Eating the Voices of Our Ancestors it was called, Oxford University Press. And uh I'm I'm still proud of that early work because it was uh one of the first um political science, political theory uh, academic books on indigenous, uh, governance. And, and I think it's, uh, still stands, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things where you look back all those years later and you recognize it as early work, you know, but I think the analysis and the ideas that I had in there, uh, were were really prescient. And the reason I say that not bragging or anything is because it was right off the bat in my career uh indicative of the way i do work which is to sit and talk and listen to people and listen to stories and try to integrate you know the perspectives of the the original people the indigenous people with what i was learning in university in terms of theory and uh people's ideas from other parts of the world and so uh to 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 kind of cut this part of the story short uh shorter uh, I published that book. I became a professor first at Concordia University in Montreal. Uh, soon after in 96, I moved over to the University of Victoria. Um, I was originally supposed to come to the University of British Columbia and law school and had an offer there. Um, but once I got to BC, I was convinced to come over to the University of Victoria. And, uh, take over, uh, a small program that they had running at the time called the Administration of Aboriginal Governance Program and turn it into something bigger. And I accepted that challenge. In the meantime, I published another book, Peace, Power, Righteousness, uh, Oxford, you know, Oxford University Press. And then, uh, kept working, doing my uh, scholarship and academic work, building a program and, uh, engaging uh, politically as well out here in British Columbia nationally, and then, uh, published another book in 2005, uh, called Wasaze Indigenous Pathways of Action and Freedom. And that was with, uh, Broadview Press, which is now the University of Toronto, uh, press. And, uh, I kept on that pathway ever since, and I haven't written any, <laughs> any new books since 2005, but I published a lot of papers and I've done a lot of work in community and I've written a lot of reports and, uh, uh, I, I guess uh, my contributions are in the realm of political theory and theorizing the idea of indigenous governance and coming up with this idea of indigenous resurgence and elaborating that in scholarly terms, but also in practice, both in the university environment for many years and then uh, in practice in native communities.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, quite a substantial. Um, journey you've been on and and i feel this quality of really bridging you know bridging these worlds the colonial and the um, indigenous first nation world
1: well that's uh that's something i've always taken pride in um because as a as a mohawk person uh one of the things that were were taught and told and was directly told to me specifically uh by one of our elders who's passed now Ernest Benedict who is a respected elder from Akwesasne. uh I remember him one time telling me that uh my name Diage uh Diage means crossing over the way he told me the story was you know you're doing you're doing what your name uh means which is you're going back and forth between our world and the white people's world and he says That's the role that you were born to do. And you're doing a good job of explaining our philosophies and our ideas and you're, and challenging the white people to, to respect them and to understand them. So keep doing what you're doing. And ever since then, I've really, that was when I was at Cornell. Ever ever since then, I've really taken it as my, my, uh, not mantra, but my mission, I guess you could say is to, is to, to honor both realities, which is to understand and to keep pushing and digging deeper and pushing myself and challenging myself to to be more of a Mohawk and to understand more what it means to be a Mohawk in a, in a true sense, to, to cut through all those layers of our contemporary reality, decolonization and all this stuff and, and, and get down to the root. And then as best as I can at whatever stage I'm at on that journey. Represent that in who I am and then also, uh, share that with other Indigenous people and then also bring that reality to the non-Indigenous world and challenge them to decolonize by respecting us for who we are. And, uh, for, for many years, I did that in a certain way and, uh, with a certain attitude, <laughs> a certain passion. And, uh, that's always been driven by, by my feeling of, the responsibility I have because of the name that I carry.
0: Well, this audience uh, for the podcast tends to be fairly global. And in that sense, you know, I'd be curious if you could speak a little bit for that uh, more broad stroke understanding of like, what is the current attitude or has been the attitude to indigenous peoples on North America? I'll give you just a a sort of parallel example. When I read the book, uh, The Inconvenient Indian, um which is fairly well known it seems you know he I, I, one it was a very uh, incredible book i found but he talked about this one metaphor he said and maybe you're, you may or may not agree but he said something like you know basically the colonial stance towards indigenous people in north america has been that they're really just like part of the furniture that that they're just trying to move around uh you know to kind of get on with a colonial project and there was something in that too which felt i mean devastating in a way too but but it kind of like articulated you know something even like metaphorically in a way that i feel maybe especially those uh, maybe outside north america don't quite understand but i just wonder again is there some way that you might speak to it almost like that kind of metaphorically or mythically like what is the current relationship so others outside can really get a sense of it you know without without kind of getting lost in technicalities too much or th- like that like for them to be able to mm-hmm. understand
1: mm-hmm. well uh i think the book that you mentioned and and the uh, the way it was conveyed by Thomas King is is accurate. But Thomas King is a nice guy, and he's uh, he's written he's writing that book for a moderate perspective from a moderate perspective to engage with Canadians and not have them turn away from the issue. Uh, and so when when he talks about being part of the furniture, I kind of agree. But I think most Indigenous people <laughs> these days would say, "Oh, it wasn't as uh, benign." As that, you know, because you have to look at the reality of Canada. And so the way I would recharacterize it, I guess, uh, would be, uh, Indigenous peoples are in the way and European society since day one has used whatever means they need to use to move us out of the way so they could exploit the resources of our homelands. And, uh, the, the means that they use to remove us from our ancestral territories. Uh, varies over time. Um, it varies, uh, only on the question of how much and to what degree are indigenous peoples resisting being moved. And so if, if you're willing to just sidestep and move out of the way, um, it's a, it's kind of a less, uh, violent. It's a, it's a less contentious type of experience that you've had. Uh, If you are willing to stand your ground and defend your territory and your right to be there and your right to determine what happens in your territory, it becomes and it has become in the history of this country for most Indigenous peoples, in fact, a very violent uh, process of um, not only contention, but conflict and ongoing uh, suppression of our existence in our own territories. And so the history of Canada I realize globally, uh, is one where people look at this project called Canada in, in fairly positive terms. <laughs> and, uh, can- Canadian governments and, and cultural actors have done a really good job of characterizing the Canadian experience as this kind of collaborative, uh, project between two founding peoples that now includes the Indigenous people. And this kind of like development of a of a society that uh for with some hiccups has <laughs> has, has <laughs> yeah. emerged as this kind of model for how diverse peoples can get along in the world. And I'm not gonna deny all aspects of that. I, mean, I think anybody who lives in Canada understands that that's that the reality of Canada is that the experience of living in this country is uh, on a number of, of measures safer, better, um positive, more positive than living as an Indigenous person in other countries. But that's not to say that Canada has been anything other than a colonial uh experiment as well. And so, you know, when when it comes down to it, the real the lived reality of Indigenous people is colonialism. And so anybody in India, anybody in Asia, anybody in Africa uh, who doesn't know Canada and the experience of Indigenous peoples, in terms of the facts knows the experience of our people because they too have been colonized and colonization is a very kind of standardized, uh, process, uh, everywhere it's practiced in the world. And so our religion, our cultural practices, our spirituality have been suppressed from day one. Um, our governments, our laws, our sovereignty has been denied and, and suppressed. And probably most importantly, our connection to our land in physical terms and and in spiritual terms has been under attack from day one as well. And uh, things have changed certainly in the last 300 years, 200 years, even a hundred years, but uh, we are still far from free to live our lives by our, our law in our homeland. And uh, people like myself who emerge from an indigenous community, are born into that and uh, we're as soon as we become conscious and aware as adult human beings uh, we're faced with the choice of whether to cooperate with this colonial reality or to contend with it
0: hmm. you know I, I so appreciate your ability to yeah, to articulate clearly that sense of um, a sort of uh, a context right that, that I mean certainly indigenous peoples grew up in and I wonder for you as well, looking back, you know, you shared that you joined the military, you know, 18 or so. And I, I'm curious now to approach this question around masculinities as well. And, and you know, what was it in your upbringing that uh, maybe put forth a model of masculinity or an idea of masculinity or or some sense that, you know, that you wanted to join the military, which in some ways, right, is a very masculine, uh, tends to be a very masculine place, I think, a uh, certain kind of masculinity. And so I wonder yeah for you as well growing up what was it that influenced you that that drew you to to you know choose that uh that role or that function you know as a younger man Mhm
1: Yeah I think in in some ways it's kind of a universal experience you know in in all societies young people especially young men at the time I was growing up it's different now because the military of course, doesn't distinguish on gender anymore. You know, um, it's, it's not a factor in determining what jobs you can do and certainly not whether or not you want to be in the military. But when I, when I joined, you know, this was the early eighties, um, it was still gendered, uh, male, uh, primarily and almost exclusively. And, and so, you know, it was, it was a situation where every young boy growing up at that time had to find a way to prove himself, right? Like that happens to everyone. And, uh, There, there's a menu of options in, in, in in the culture that you grew up in. And, uh, you know, for, for the culture that I grew up in, in order to, uh, manifest your manhood and your masculinity, um, there, the menu was prime, was dominated by, uh, ironwork. So high steel ironwork. Um, most of the men in my community, including my father and all his friends and all my relatives and grandfathers, did uh high steel ironwork and uh that that's one model that's one thing you could do uh not only <clears throat> to 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 satisfy the basic uh requirements of manhood as it was uh, constructed at the time in terms of providing for a family and contributing to the community economically and so forth but also to to gain the esteem and 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 the recognition uh, of moving from boyhood to manhood there was that There was the sport of lacrosse, which our people invented, which is very significant, uh, in the, so in the, in the cultural life of our community, you know, proving yourself by, by playing lacrosse and, and your exploits, uh, around that game. And then there's the military. And, uh, those were the three models. Uh, of course, there were people, uh, rarely who did not follow one of those pathways, uh, who had other jobs and, it was emerging in the 1980s that you could uh, take part in higher education and you could do other things. But uh, it's fair to say, and I don't think anyone would disagree with me, that you know, in the late 70s and early 80s in a place like Kahnawake, um, those are the three ways that that you engaged with uh, masculinity and uh, a model of what it was to be a man. And so um, my father did not want me to be an iron worker. <laughs> He uh, refused to sponsor me and, and let me uh, in, enter that trade. He wanted me to do something different. Um, I wasn't a very good lacrosse player at the time. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, one thing I had in as an option to pursue was uh, the military. And so it's an interesting question to, to kind of go back into your 17-year-old mind. To try to go back into your 17 year old mind and figure out what was driving you at the time. And all I can do to try to answer that question is to, to try to recall the imagery and the experiences that stayed with me all this time around that. And, uh, I, I think, I think it was definitely, um, uh, uh, as in my mind at the time, a pathway for validation. As a man, I mean, there was all these kind of like smaller motivations about wanting to travel, you know, not having money growing up on a reserve, not, not having the means to kind of like a lot of non-Indigenous, uh, young people do to have their parents sponsor them to go to Europe for a year or to go to college and do trips and things. We, we didn't have that. And so for me, there was that adventure, uh, element. There was the cool factor. You know, you're 17 years old. You're 18 years old. Uh, it's pretty hard to beat the United States Marines <laughs> for coolness in that, uh, in that era, you know? Um, but you know, I, I also have to say, I used to dream about it uh, as a teenage boy. I don't know. It might have been G.I. Joe comics. It might have been movies. It might have been, uh, the world book encyclopedia. Um, uh, looking at the pictures and to me, they're the United States Marines represented like the epitome of, uh, of a man at the time. And, uh, I was drawn to that. And uh, when I first went to the recruiter's office in Plattsburgh, New York, we used to have to drive down across the border. It's only like half an hour, uh, an hour from Gonawaga, uh, across the border and go into New York State. Um, cause this is the United States Marine Corps we're talking about. And and I grew up uh, outside of Montreal. So because of our legal status as first nations, we were, you know, we can go either way in Canada or the U S and we have legal rights in the U S as well. Um, I kind of chickened out at first, (laughs) you know, cause uh, I went to the recruiter's office and, uh, you know, there's the Navy, the army, the coast guard, the Marine Corps, the air force, they're all there. And, uh, so I went into this building. It was like an old bank and uh, on a long hallway, all the recruiter's offices are there. <clears throat> my Two of my cousins had been in the Navy. So I was like, I think that's going to be good enough. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to join the, the military, but the Marine Corps is kind of scary. Like uh, it, it looks like they're crazy, you know, and, and it, it's too hard. And I don't know what's going to happen to me if I join the Marine Corps. Oh, plus I had talked to my uncle, uh, my granduncle, who was in the war in World War Two. And, uh, when I talked to him that I was interested in the Marine Corps, he's this old native guy from Onondaga and in, in New York, tough guy. And, uh, I said, what do you think about, uh, I might want to join the Marines. He goes, that's a rough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh shit. You know, <laughs> this grizzled old veteran native guy who's been through the war. Tells me that's a rough crowd. I'm like, oh, <laughs> fuck, you know. So I kind of had that on my mind when I showed up at the recruiter's office. I looked at him like, ah, I'm going to go into the Navy. And, uh, I went and talked to them. And I guess it was, I was like a little bit prag, prag, pragmatic too. You know, they had really good jobs. You get training, uh, electronics and all this kind of stuff. So I talked to the Navy recruiter. <laughs> I'm walking out uh, down the hallway. So the Navy one was like right at the end. And the Marine Corps one was right at the beginning of the hallway, so you have to kind of like walk back out past them. All. <laughs> and here's this uh, Marine recruiter standing there in the in the doorway uh, with his dress blues on, you know, just waiting for for suckers to walk by. And and then here I am walking by after talking to the Navy, and he's just looking at me. He sees me come out of the Navy's office, and he goes, "You're really going to join the Navy." Fucking pussy. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I'm like, what? Like, who is this guy talking to me this way? Right. And he goes, he goes, you don't join the Navy. He goes, be it real, man. Come and join the Marine Corps. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And, uh, <laughs> something caught me. Like it worked, you know, like this guy obviously knows what he's doing, right? He's, he's a professional. So he sees this young guy and he, he must have saw something in me. And he, he challenged me. He's like, he, he said, you think you can't hack the record? come on in? See if you can do it. And I was like, ah, oh, okay. You know, I'll at least talk to him. And I started talking to him and then and then I, I was sold. And I went back again and then I had decided, like, in the meantime, I mean, it was a couple of weeks later, I said, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, would, I was nervous as hell and I was scared as hell, but I went in there. And, uh, this is the last funny thing that happened in my recruiting process. He, uh, they give you a test. You know, it's kind of like an aptitude test. And, uh, it's about an hour. You have to fill out all kinds of questions. And it's meant to determine your, your strengths and your weaknesses so they can assign you a job. Um, I went to private school in Montreal. So I had a pretty good education. Went to Loyola High School in Montreal. So I, I knew how to read and write and I was pretty smart. And, uh, so I did this test and I think, the score is like, I may be wrong, but I think it was like 150 is the top. And, and I got something like, uh, 138. <laughs> and so the guy, the guy sitting there eh? and he's like, damn, you're a brainiac. He goes, uh, you could do anything you want in the Marine Corps. He goes, we'll sign you up. He goes, what do you want to do? Aircraft mechanics? Do you want to do all this stuff? And I'm like, nah, I want to join the infantry. He's like, boy, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought you were smart. <laughs> he goes, you know what? we? He goes, every, the guys who fail everything else, that's who we put in the infantry. And I'm like, no, no. I said, I, when I think of the Marines, uh, I'm thinking about shooting a machine gun and blowing stuff up. And then he goes, oh, I like you, man. <laughs> 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 he goes, just think about it though. He goes, you could do anything you want. Yeah. But if you sign up, for the infantry you're you're going into infantry like you're, you're going to be carrying a gun you're going to be you know humping around in the field and and doing all that kind of stuff and uh there was never any doubt in my mind i don't know i just uh i used to have dreams when i was a kid of shooting a machine gun and stuff like that And i'm like if i'm gonna do this this is what i'm gonna do
0: yeah wow you know, what comes to me is this—this uh, this maybe a sense of longing or or desire to to step into the role of the warrior, right? Which I think, you know, archetypally or iconically, like you said, I mean, in this case, to the younger boy of you, you know, the Marine Corps was like the coolest warrior. I, I mean, that's my interpretation. You know, the cur- coolest expression of the warrior, maybe that you you could see or had access to. Um, Yeah, and I wonder, I know in your work, you've talked about the warrior or the role of warrior in in indigenous communities. And I wonder, what did you learn during your time there, you know, within this sense of the warrior? Uh, You know, how did it map onto maybe what you thought it was or what it wasn't, you know, what you turned out to be? And then how did your sense of the warrior change, perhaps, you know, over time since?
1: yeah that's a really good question i I think you're right to point to the motivational factor being wanting to explore and touch that idea of a warrior and be one you know i mean i have to say uh, i was never the toughest kid (laughs) i was never the strongest um i could name off 10 10 boys that i grew up with that are like way tougher better fighters everyone was scared (laughs) of. I was kind of like a shy, gentle kid almost, you know? Uh, and so that's where the motivation comes in for me. It's like, I'm never going to be able to beat up these guys and I I can't fight with them. They're, uh, I'm I'm big, but there's some tough guys in, in And, uh, so to me, it's like, okay, this is a way of, uh, of fulfilling the role, at least in the physicality terms of, of, being a warrior. um, the main lesson that I have after all these years thinking about it is that uh, what I found was that and what I realized and I still hold today, uh, through that experience was that the, the, what it is to be a warrior is really to endure suffering, to, to have courage to persevere and to do what's necessary to fulfill the responsibilities you have to that community and so of course, my community in quotes has changed you know when when you're United States marine you're you're protecting the empire and so um there was a lot of respect in the Marine Corps, not for people who were like super skilled or all buffed out strong and able to do uh forty pull ups and all that kind of stuff yeah, those guys were respected, but y- you had respect for your your esprit de corps. Yeah, you had respect for your, whether you were gunji or not, as they say at the Marine Corps, gunji, you know, like you had the spirit, the fighting spirit and, um uh, and whether you were brave, whether you were crazy brave, you know, in the Marine Corps. And for me, it shifted over time, but the essence of that, uh, of, of the one who's willing to put them, themselves forward, uh, to stand in the way of danger. To, to have the courage to fight through, uh, their fear to do what needs to be done to, to protect the, the core of their community and what they believe in. So to me, uh, I, I kind of found that through experience in the Marine Corps. Uh, I did very well in the Marine Corps. I shot up, uh, like only, I was only in for three years, but I became a corporal and a platoon leader and, uh, was leading leading men in the field, you know, at 20 years old in, in Central America and stuff. And for me, that that was a big accomplishment because I felt I had accomplished my goal. I'm like, hey, I mean, I stay spree Breed. I'm, I'm like in charge of guys out here in Honduras. You know, <laughs> you can't get more rad than that. And But then then these other questions start hitting me. You know, as soon as you accomplish that, you start asking yourself, do I want to keep doing this? Um, is this right? What we're doing? (laughs) Uh, what kind of life am I living? All that kind of stuff. And, and those questions came with age as I started to get older. And, uh, I'm happy to say though, that, you know, I've processed through a lot of the negative, um, in, in, in today's terms, you know, the, the traumas of that experience and the, uh, the, the ideas that I carried from that from that experience about, uh, the utility of aggression and, and, uh, certain attitudes, hard attitudes, hardcore attitudes, kind of processed through all of those and kind of left those behind as not being useful as a, as a daily (laughs) practice. But, uh, I have kept that, that idea of, uh, of being ready to stand up and do what's necessary, whatever the consequences and to, and I think that that is very consistent. From what I've learned, uh, from reading and from talking to people about indigenous teachings on, uh, warriorhood. Of course, there's no, in, there's no Mohawk word for a warrior in, in quotations, right? You know, there's, there's those, it translates to those that carry the burden of peace. You know, so it's very consistent. Rodiscan Raghete, Rodiscan Raghete, uh, you know, those that it carried the burden of peace. And so the way I looked at it was over time I came to understood, I came to understand the warrior in a in a different, deeper, more expanded way by 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 going further into the teachings in my own culture. And what I found was that I had to let go of a lot of the ideas around soldiering or warriorhood that came from that imperial uh, experience that imperial, uh, shock troop experience that I had when I was young. But the, the core of, of warriorhood is the same in all cultures. When it's practiced, I think in its essence and, and when it's practiced properly, it's, it's that willingness to suffer and willingness to go to, to the extreme to die, uh, and to kill, which is, uh, in a lot of ways harder than, uh, dying, I think. Uh, to, to kill for the people and whoever the people are that changes over time for us indigenous people. As I become more and more decolonized, I saw myself, of course, more rooted in this uh, understanding of my people being my indigenous nation, uh, in the resurgence of our, of our being, as opposed to being just part of the larger society as an ethnic person who happened to be Native American. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Wow. I really love that articulation you said of a uh, warrior as those who carry the burden of peace. And, you know, it strikes me a little of, uh, author Rhianne Eisler who wrote the book, uh, Chalice and the Blade. Um, but she just talks about this, uh, recognition of dominator culture, right? Like she uses that lens as opposed to even like patriarchy, which can often kind of miss this deeper layer. I feel that it's, it's a culture of domination. And so I just hear in, in, for example, like the, the army, or even like the police force or these other sort of warrior roles in an empirical culture or a dominator culture end up being used for sort of furthering domination, you know, and it's just such a different energy than what you just described as the warrior carrying the burden of peace. Like they're just so utterly, you know, uh, it's like I can actually see them almost as inverse, Which is maybe not a surprise, you know. In some ways, that you know, a lot of the expressions may be similar, of like, yeah, needing to use force when necessary, needing to kill, but the reason for it or like the orientation is very different. Uh, You know, if it's for the nation state versus an actual like people um, that you know community you're protecting. So, yeah, I just I just really really wanted to highlight that as well. That that is very powerful, I think, distinction, especially for men, right? Who may be saying, "Well, what if I don't have this? You know, if I'm not a warrior in this way, well, what is a warrior then? You know, then they." They don't have that uh, other sense of what's possible. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the, the one issue that I think we're still grappling with is when you are in combat, whether or not that's on a battlefield or on a sports field or on the street if you're a cop, um, to what degree and what kinds of dominator skills are still necessary in order to survive? So I mean you grow up in certain environments or you put yourself in in certain situations like I did in, in the marine corps you do need those dominator skills you you need to know how to fight you need to know how to pull the trigger you have to have that kind of mental sharpness and emotional hardness to be able to do stuff like that and a lot I mean a lot of the discussion is around how to leave that on the battlefield how to leave that on the street or leave that on the court so to speak but I think what we're finding now is that it's really hard to do that, you know, like when you when you think about uh, what we're finding out, which some people have known all this time. But, you know, you find out about cop culture and the domestic relations they have. And, you know, you certainly find it in the military uh, and you find it with team sports uh, as well. The ideas that you have that are ingrained in you that you need to be successful uh, never mind, just to survive, but to be successful in that environment, it's hard to leave those behind, uh, when you're, when you're not in contest, you know? And, and so that's a big problem, I think, is that they get ingrained in you. And, and even though you're not a violent person, you're not a person who intends to do harm or wants to do harm or has any motivation to do that. Uh, it's hard to switch on and off, right? And, and so the attitude stays there. And so that's the beauty, I think, of indigenous teachings on warriorhood is that the key difference, as I found, uh, and is known among our people is that the, the idea and the practice of warriorhood in indigenous cultures, at least in Haudenosaunee or Iroquois communities is in the warrior serving decisions and operating in the context of women's power and a balanced notion between men and women. And there's no separation. It's not like it's just all men, which is certainly the case. in for, you know, when I was in the military and I think it's still the case, although there are uh, a lot of uh, uh, women and other genders in the, in the U S military now, it's still very much a man's world and a man's game. And so when you have men telling other men what to do and men trying to please other men in a, in a, in a kind of physical and social space that's completely male, uh, that's different than operating as a warrior where you have women watching over you, uh, with the ability to determine, uh, the decisions in that community. And I think that's, that's key in, in, in understanding the difference between indigenous concepts of warriorhood and and mainstream.
0: Hmm. I appreciate that the sense that you know where where is there a sourcing of of yeah you know, like orientation of like what does it mean to be a good warrior or what does it mean to be uh, a good man because I feel like the the modern culture the sort of homeless culture and right, I would call it that is I think sort of dogged by uh, a kind of uh, lostness that doesn't know where to source its its sense of what's meaningful you know, and I'd say that masculinity or men's work even has been, this has been a charge, you know, that's come up a lot because in some ways, you know, I, I think of the first wave mythopoetic men's movements where in many ways they, they you know, quotations borrowed a lot of indigenous ceremony that they could find, you know, this is sort of the early 80s. And I spoke to one of the founders and he, you know, he fully admits, you know, sheepishly that they were kind of like, well, this looks good. And, to, you know, talking peace here and a bit of sweat lodge there. And, You know, because they didn't have anything to draw from, or at least they didn't have their own ancestral, you know, lineage intact enough to know, oh, this is how we would have done it back in, you know, Northern Europe or something. Um, So there's been an evolution, I think, of a kind of kind of haphazard appropriation uh, and then kind of being humbled, I think, with the work. But I think still what the missing piece is for me is that if any kind of cultural conversation, you know, en masse around masculinity or, you know, post Me Too, things like this, you know, what does it mean to be a good man? if it's not sourced in any true orientation to, to land or to, you know, a specific peoples, then it feels like it's it's sort of destined to always be lost. Like, I guess that's that's what I'm sort of backing into in a way. But I hear you saying, you know, again, in the Mohawk tradition, you might say, yeah, because this is the way we did it, you know, and this is the way the women had this role or they would oversee this. So I would just love if you could speak a little bit more too about, you know, that that need to actually be in relationship to like to a place or to an actual Specific cosmology, in a way, uh, to to have any sense of you know what is what is meaningful, what's worth doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did i I listened to your interview with uh, Tyson from Melbourne, and uh, he he made a he made a really good fundamental point too. And you guys had a good conversation around that about his understanding of masculinity and his his living out of an idea of manhood before he began to really immerse himself in understanding of himself as an indigenous person from the land within the culture and i like the way he traced his journey you know from this kind of like lost guy to playing the didgeridoo and doing certain dances and all that stuff you know and we all go through that you know I, I could really relate and it's this kind of like process of 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 retraditionalizing or or moving slowly incrementally back into our true selves and so uh i think that to, in in terms of being an indigenous person and in terms of masculinity we're all unfortunately subject to not only the struggle that every man goes through and trying to find himself uh and and work out a way that is satisfying and ethical and useful and good uh but also doing that in a colonial context where it's it's not only that but it's also this pressing need to defend ourselves from the assault of colonialism psychologically physically spiritually and also the the erasure of any kind of positive healthy um useful to our own community notion of what it is to be a man and uh it's not that way now because of cor- of course we put work into it and we've had some movement where young boys now have other uh ideas to integrate into their own notions but you know he, he said he was 48 years old um 56 when we were growing up uh it was still a very colonized uh, reality and so the the process of of surviving and empowering and living out your masculinity in that environment is very messy. And, uh, and that's for a person that has a strong sense of self and intelligence and, and the mental strength to be able to, to get through that. You can imagine for all the people that by no fault of their own don't possess those things and fall victim to the worst, uh, the worst teachings of colonialism on what it is to be a man, you know? So those of us that have made it through, um, there is really no other way in my mind, uh, to realize what it is to be a father, a uncle, a brother, a partner, a good man as a Mohawk, as a Haudenosaunee person, as a Ungwe, other than tracing the roots back to the central teachings of what it is to be part of a family. Uh, what is it to be part of a family? What is it in terms of, uh, a set of responsibilities? What kind of roles and responsibilities do people who, do people have who are, are male gendered, uh, in this environment? And what I've found is that there isn't really a set of teachings on masculinity <laughs> that you would say it's about how to be a good human being and it's about people serving different roles based on the gifts and the talents and the particularities of their birth and like i said my name okay that's one thing the fact that you're a man versus a woman or another gender that's another thing these are things you have to consider but the framework for thinking about goodness is 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 the same for all of us it's it's you know how do you serve the community how do you live out the spiritual uh aspect of your existence um how do you uh, how are you a good human being? And so um to me, that's been essential. Insight is that there's no way to be a good man and a good woman. It's how to be a good human being. And as a man, uh in a physical sense and then now in a cultural sense, in this moment in history that I'm living in, how do I uh, manifest the responsibilities that I have and the teachings are the only way from our, from our culture. You know, you have to immerse yourselves in, in the mythology. You have to put yourself in a vulnerable position to have people, uh, look at you and teach you in, in various ways, uh, through words, through actions, through criticism, through holding you to account to teaching you by example, all of these different things. It's kind of this active process of decolonizing your mind and your your way of being, all all with the objective of tracing that root back to the center of, of, of the community where our ancestors, we believe our ancestors had uh, a really good way of living amongst themselves that promoted the values that we all share as human beings, you know, they, they were very, by all accounts, uh, people who encountered them in our own oral histories, they were, they were very, uh, satisfied people. They were very happy people. They were very healthy people. And so to trace our route back to how to be part of that family and what, what contributions do you need to make, uh, to make sure that that, is the lived reality of future generations is the real question. And I happen to be um, uh, a person with uh, male genitalia and so forth. And I'm going to, of course, be shaped by by that experience in a positive and negative way. But uh, the bigger question is, what is it to be a good human being?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I've been struck by when I speak to indigenous peoples and they give a little sense of how they orient, you know, around these questions and, and in ceremony and, you know, different tasks in the community. The way, only way I can think to describe it is a lot of the modern discourse on gender seems to be that gender is a problem to solve. Like, you know, that's that's the kind of orientation I see. Nobody's really saying that in some sense. Maybe, maybe, maybe feminist fringe might be saying it kind of like that. But I feel when I talk to an indigenous person who has some sense of their sort of traditional orientation they would just say well they just have different roles but they're not in opposition you know and so i see it as a fundamental different orientation that it's almost like the dominant culture is so wounded around these issues of gender that it it becomes a problem to solve right uh it becomes yeah reduce reduction of harm which is obviously really important to reduce harm and all that but it's like the fulcrum isn't the same of how to actually lead to the world i think that so many long for
1: yeah i mean you talk about teachings and, and stories and mythology. Uh, I think what you're talking about and the way you're expressing it, which I really like, is kind of reflected in the central story of the founding of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Uh, it's a long story, and there's many elements to it. But one aspect of it kind of reflects what you're talking about in our conversation right here. You know, there in the story, in the teaching that we have, um, there's all kinds of people. And there's all kinds of examples of how to be a human and how to be a man and how to be a woman. Um, and it is not as you say, as you as you point to, uh, a story of uh defeating or overcoming or molding these these diverse ways of being into a perfect way of being a Mohawk or Ongwe. It's about the harmonization of these and the unification of these into uh, to, into a uh, a whole which in its diversity uh, represents a power of being that is something worth preserving in the world and so you know there's there's the peacemaker in our story who comes with a message uh, to our people because our people. Uh, had descended into, uh, civil war, chaos, cannibalism. Um, this is the story of the Haudenosaunee before the peacemaker. He comes into our world and he encounters and finds, uh, a warrior who is willing to listen. And, uh, Hiawatha, you see, you might know uh, there's the peacemaker and there's Hiawatha. Hiawatha is kind of taken off in all kinds of different directions in, in, in poetry and movies and so forth. But Hiawatha, it means he's awakened. And so, you know, here you have a warrior who's, who's the chief of a village who obviously is living out this reality, which nobody wants to live anymore, but they're caught in this cycle of violence and they don't know how to come out of it. And the peacemaker comes and he's the first one to, to listen and, and give this, this message respect. He suffers for it. You know, he suffers for it. He, he loses his daughters and he suffers all kinds of things. Um, there's also Jigun Saze, which, and she is a person who is aiding the warriors. She, she's a woman. Uh, the message is brought to her. In the story, she, she accepts the message and she stops assisting the warriors with their, their battles and becomes the first clan mother who's going to advise and, and guide the chiefs and their decision making. You also have the, the war chief who refuses to accept the message and him and his, him and his boys challenge the peacemaker to, to prove what they're saying because they don't believe him. And besides, if they let their guard down, who's to say that these other nations are not going to come and, and try to kill them while they're sleeping? These kind of things. So you have all these stories woven together. And in the end, uh, well, it's not the end because it's ongoing, but you know, there, there comes, <laughs> there comes a point where, you know, even the head, the head sorcerer of the whole territory, Tarodaho, uh, evil minded, twisted, a uh, great medicine man who can do great harm to the land and the people. They all come and bring all of their unique realities and powers to this person and convince him to smooth out his hair and become part of the great peace and and uh, they make him the the head chief for doing so. And so the thing that strikes me, and especially in the way that you put it, in reflection of the way that you put it, is in the central mythology of the Haudenosaunee. You have an acknowledgement of all of these different types of people and characters and instincts and necessities and roles. They don't get rid of the warrior. They don't get rid of the. the they are. All, they are all harmonized for peace. And so the the message is very different than the one right way of Judeo-Christian uh, cultures. You know, there's a there's one way. There's one truth. And, uh, you know, the only way through it is through me. Yeah. You know, and, uh, we all know the kind of, uh, refrains from, from Christian mythology and the way it's been translated into Western European cultures. You know, I am the way to truth and the light. And, and that's it. And I think that the genius of, uh, of our way is that we recognize that in any human society, you're going to have all these things. And the, and the one thing, that That really is absolutely necessary, and the thing we struggle for, the thing we strive for uh, is this uh balance and this harmonization of diversity, and so we accept these different ways and roles not only in their reality but the necessity of them. We need people to protect We need people to do these other roles and so forth, but it's it's what are they what are they subsuming themselves to? And uh, the chance for the next generation and two and three and four and five generations to live in peace amongst each other uh, is the thing that they're asked to to sacrifice for.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, thank you for that glimpse uh, into the story. Um, you know, what comes to me is the, I mean, just the deep intelligence or the deep wisdom of, in a way, encoding that, that harmonization you know within the story format or the story the storied being, whereas you know if I' look out as well on the on the culture at large and and using these frames of things like toxic masculinity and just how limited they feel to actually invite a kind of responsiveness that is as that intelligent you know as as encoded in the story because it's one thing to say you know we don't want this behavior this is bad behavior. But again, I can almost feel that there's, the energy is nowhere to go. It's nowhere, you know what I mean? It's just like, okay, whoa, don't do that. And I think a lot of men, particularly young men, right, are buckling under the weight of essentially just being like, we're just awful. Like there's there's no redemption for us because of what we've done. I mean, I know as a youth too, right, I struggled a lot with looking out at the world and just seeing the level of destruction and mayhem and seemed all wrought, you know, by men who you know seemed kind of like, scary animals in some ways right when when you couldn't trust them you know and i had to do a lot of work in my own time with coming to trust men you know and i think a lot of men do in this culture you know particularly maybe the more sensitive you know uh poetic types maybe but there is that sense i had to come to that you know i had to i had to do that work and i feel like um i'm curious for you like how do you see the the possibility of inviting this uh, yeah a way into the conversation maybe that for example, you have two sons, I think, right? Was it one or two sons? Three, three sons. Okay, yeah. Yes. And and so I wonder again for them, you know, like how have you seen this kind of like the consequence of of this kind of you know over, over climate in a way of masculinity or toxicity? How have you helped them navigate this conversation? You know, as they've come into their adolescence and, and beyond. I think what I heard one was twenty twenty four. So yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I wonder for you as a father again, like how would, how have you navigated this alongside them?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you'd have to ask them, I guess, for, for a report and an evaluation. But in terms of myself, uh, and the way that I've gone through this whole process of fatherhood, um, I, I, things changed significantly for me probably about five years ago, six years ago, uh, because that's when, I mean, I went through a divorce. And I really questioned myself. Um, I had a lot of uh, issues and conflicts in my job environment and so forth. And so, uh, um, and when you're when you're a prominent voice in an indigenous community, <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, Tyson spoke about this too. And he said his book's starting to sell, so now everyone hates him or something <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> uh, to paraphrase him, the brother, you know. But uh, when you're when you're a prominent person. And, and you represent a certain idea. And, uh, when you're challenging, um, you, you do get a lot of attention, um, in terms of people looking at you uh, iconically, <laughs> I would say. And so that's kind of like being a father, right? You know, like your kids look up to you as, as an icon, like this is what it is to be a man. You know, this is, this is a man. And so I kind of had both of those happening, you know, in the public sphere and then in a private sphere. And then I went through some, some big changes in my, in my own life in terms of, uh, questioning the, uh, effect, but also questioning the usefulness and the rightness of the version of masculinity that I was living out. And so for myself, I had still, I think, carried forward a lot of the ideas from my earlier experiences that I talked about, you know, just kind of like, traditionally masculine culture and the military and my involvement in politics and beyond politics and kind of like militant native politics and and, in warrior societies and so forth uh, I had been I was fairly secure in living out this notion of what it was to be a man based on this older idea of a warrior you know where I know all these other teachings I know the things that are out there but my particular place and my utility is, is in representing, uh, this kind of aggressive challenge to colonialism. <laughs> and I'm going to be the one that sticks my neck out, that puts himself out front in challenging in very aggressive ways, all of the negative things coming into our community. And that includes calling people out. That includes holding people up in this kind of like tough love a very aggressive way of saying, here's what it is to be a warrior. Here's what it is to be a Mohawk. Here's what it is to be a native. These are the things you need to do. And if you're not doing them, you're failing us. You know, so you can see like in my earlier writings and the way that I taught and the way that I engage with people publicly and so forth, there's that element of that, that, that warrior. Okay. That was also the way that I raised my sons, (laughs) <laughs> and at first, you know, in the earlier, uh, phases of, of my fatherhood, which is to say, like, here's, here's standards. You don't live up to them. But, and this is very familiar stuff to, to a lot of people. You know, a lot of us grow up this way and a lot of people still father that way and, and live their lives. But, you know, because of the conflicts that I had in my job and because of critiques of my work, from indigenous feminists, from people who had been through the program, who were talking about the, the impacts of this on them, uh, because of my, my divorce and so forth. I started to question uh, in and of myself, like, <clears throat> well, I have all this success and I have succeeded in political terms and in educational terms. Um, a lot of people respect and admire. The work that I've done and I hear that from them, but obviously it's not perfect. <laughs> obviously there are problems because I'm not feeling like I'm doing the best job that I can as a father. And I'm definitely not feeling that I'm doing the best job that I can as a, as a leader of, of, as an indigenous leader. I don't think I'm setting the best example. And I think that that only can that kind of realization can only happen over time? Like in, in my mind, it's like for a certain time, for a certain struggle or phase of the struggle, it was good. It was right. It was constructed. And, and then a good leader, a good man, a good person understands when it's not working. And that person takes on new knowledge, seeks out new knowledge. Does self-examination shows that vulnerability of saying, you know, what am I doing wrong? How can I improve and humbles himself or is humbled, you know, through various process and accepts that and, and then learns from it. And for me, I went through that in a very intense way, like two or three year period and it's ongoing. But, um, my, the, the, the shift that, that I, went through was in trying to preserve the capacity to act as a warrior protector in, in that kind of like Marine way um, when necessary, but to not make that the core of who I was in a daily basis. And in my relationships, both in terms of with my sons and um, my, the, the women in my life and also, you know, publicly to begin to shift and to serve a different role, um, and so f- I think that when it comes to my 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 sons, I now have more to offer them. You know, I, I have more to offer them in terms of sharing my own experiences, the negative and the positive, and the things I've learned, and to to counsel them from that basis as opposed to counsel them from the ba- the old basis and platform of there's one right way to be a man and you're not living up to it, or here's how you can be like me, (laughs) you know, and realizing that they're all human beings too. You know, uh, one of my sons, I'm very proud of him. He's, uh, becoming a top chef. Uh, he works at one of the best restaurants in Canada, put a little plug in Liverpool house, Joe (laughs) beef empire in Montreal. You know, he, he's a chef over there and he's doing really good. Uh, He's, he's his own person. You know, he's an artistic person, a sensitive person, and he, he's working in that environment. And I, I have to understand that he's not me. You know, there's aspects of me, uh, but he's his own person. My other son, Brandon, you know, he, he has his own life going on. He's the one that has a child and he's having another, another one very soon next month. And, uh, he has his personality and his desires and his goals. And then I have my young guy. He's he's thirteen, Kai, you know, and uh, he's very musically and artistically inclined, and uh, he he's he's got his own desires and personality. And so I guess that's the one thing is that in both my public life, in terms of the way that I conducted that I conduct myself um, in relation to people at work, and. Also, in terms of my own personal relationships, I've learned in the last few years that people will come to these relationships with their own set of experiences, um, various traumas, sets of knowledges, uh, all kinds of desires and goals. And there's not just one way to relate and that you have to respect that if you want to be an effective parent and if you want to be an effective communicator and I'm, I'm out of the education game now <laughs> for now anyway. Um, but if you want to be an effective educator as well, obviously you have to respect that and work with that as opposed to setting a standard and demanding that people live up to it. And, um, yeah. So in a sense, both, both public and private, uh, they, they kind of reflect in, in in different ways but the same essential uh learning that I've had over the years and and it's serving me very well I could say like I'm happy to say uh the work that I do now is in much more of a support role um so it has a little bit to do with my age too you know like I say I'm 56 and the people that I work for for in my main job right now in the Mohawk Council Gatineau are are mainly younger women so my direct supervisor is a younger woman the two uh, chiefs who supervise my project are younger women. And um, I'm sharing the experiences and the knowledge that I have, but not from a leadership role. Um, and that's something that I'm very grateful for, to be able to serve that role and in that function and to be able to learn how to manifest uh, masculinity and to be a man in that context, shifting over from decades of being the leader to a new environment and uh, I have to say it suits me really well. I'm very happy to be doing it. And the same thing with my fatherhood now, you know, challenges everywhere, teenagers and young adults raising kids. Uh, there, There's the usual and expected things that come up. And uh, I find myself feeling pretty good about the ability that I have to be able to help my my son's figure all this out without um dictating to them mm. a solution and just sharing experiences and knowledge mm.
0: i should say as well I, I have a two-year-old son and uh it's it's yeah he's he's really <laughs> learning a lot every day and i call him uh, my entropy angel <laughs> because he's so good at you know <laughs> destroying a room in a short period of time um, but you know I, I hear in the quality that you're speaking of almost um Mirrored a little bit in some reading I was doing with this another author. Um, he wrote a book called Beyond the Hero, which I which I really recommend. Uh, author named Alan B. Chinon. Um, but he said that it's sort of a quality as as the masculine or men sort of get older in life, you know, sort of mid life, is that they 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 in a sense they don't always do this, but they they can soften their kind of disciplined ordered world of like, yeah, this is the way, and that's that, and, you know, this is wrong, and this is right, and da-da-da. But there's a certain quality of being able to hold paradox, you know, which I feel is sort of this more maturing capacity, which, you know, and he equ- he equates it a little bit with the trickster, that this this ability to hold paradox and not need to, you know, collapse into like one or the other. And I just hear that, I think, in a little bit what you're saying, you know, that that it's a different quality of, of a sort of, it, it feels almost like nurturance, you know, but also offering some orientation, you know, but also not from a, a sort of yeah, disciplinarian framework. So, you know, I wonder what, is that, yeah, what does that speak to you, you know, in, in recognizing as your role change feels like more of a mentor now in some way, or even, you know, I've heard the term elder in training, you know, that, that is, is perhaps a lifelong project and it should be. But, um, but there seems to be these, you know, little shoots of that uh, recognition, I think, coming forth.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I think there's a lot to what you're saying in terms of stage of life and especially if you've you've lived a life where you have this the intensity of the experiences that someone like like I have had. You know, so I've been in the Marine Corps, I went to Ivy League University, I took on leadership in academic realm, I was involved in militant NATO politics. Um, CSIS and the RCMP were after me for my political <laughs> activities and all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and so, and that's not even to mention the personal, uh, journey as well. And I think that, you know, there's, there's an aspect to it where over time, um, whether it's maturing or whether it's fatigue, <laughs> I don't know, <clears throat> or whether just reaching to the point of, is it paradox or I don't give a fuck anymore you know it's it's both of them lead to this thing, to the same place where where you're just you're able to accept everything and you're able to integrate everything into this this reality that you're living and so I, I, I see what you're saying in terms of the way that I talked about it is like there's no one right way you got to respect all these experiences that people have and you know I'm not to the point of being cynical. Uh, and I don't feel a cynicism, which I think it unfortunately can devolve into sometimes is that you, you, you kind of go through all these experiences on the personal front and uh, on the work front and you just become cynical and you're just like, that's the, I, and you know, I don't give a fuck kind of attitude, but for me, uh, it is more reflective of what you're talking about in this ability to accept paradox and to really, I guess, achieve another level of understanding. (laughs) is that you are you and you have a certain set of gifts and talents and um, uh, things to offer, to put it that way, things to offer either your sons or the world or your your colleagues at work that are the aggregation, uh, a thoughtful uh, aggregation of all of these experiences filtered through a set of values that, that you still maintain. So I still have these values. Um, I've not always lived them out as fully as i'd like to have but as i grow older i'm learning how to do it better and better and and now i'm able to kind of represent that in conversation and my writing and, and in the work that i do and in the conversations i have with my sons i'm able to better integrate all of that and to to and i have more skill just because it's been more time that i'm doing it as a father to be able to offer it to them in useful ways and um uh, I, I really do think that you, you hit it on the head in, in the sense that what comes from that book is is the ability to, to integrate paradox, I think you said it, and uh, conflict, inconsistency, um, all these kind of things are part of the world, you know, and uh, you can hold two uh, different ideas that may not necessarily agree with each other in your head because each of them have a certain value uh, and a certain truth to them. And, and there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute one right way. And the the older you get, if you're a thinking person, and if you're constantly kind of self critiquing and and looking for better ways to be, the more you understand that.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you made me think of the, I mean, the paradox of of living in a colonial reality and a I mean, indigenous reality, which, you know, was much older, of course, than the colonial, more recent mentality for talking about this land in North America. And I guess my question to you, too, is one that, like you say, you've articulated also in other talks, I've heard how the indigenous resistance has responded in certain ways. And how, you know, I, I guess what I fear is a kind of, if one maps on the sense of, well, you know, all perspectives are valid, and, you know, everybody has their experience, you know, and then there's like, yeah, but the colonial project is actively, you know, oppressing and and destroying and this and that. So it's kind of like, where does one find the, the the ground, you know, to be like, well, that's your experience, and you know, this is our territory. Like, uh, you know, with the colonial project, like, and and even you know, it's related to say, what does allyship mean, you know, in the face of that too, which, you know, is something we haven't really touched on here, but maybe this could be a good thing to round out with. I'll just say, I had another interview with a fellow as well who, when we talked about you know, one's own life purpose. And and off, we were talking about men, or men, you know, coming to sense of what is worth doing. And, you know, he, his at the end of the day, he was like, and he's a, he's a rite of passage guide. And he was like, well, you know, self, personal growth and stuff is great, but, you know, we got to stop the old growth from being chopped down. You know, we got to stop the rivers from being polluted. Like that was the sort of front, you know, line sort of, uh, that that's actually where the focus should be. Uh, the other stuff's good, you know, but I, I know, and I know they're interrelated, but, you know, for me, all of these kind of mix. Like you say, I mean, there's a, there's a skillfulness to be adaptable to paradox and to colonial reality versus, you know, the indigenous reality. And where do you find the ground to still stand on to say, but we have to oppose this or we, or maybe it's not opposition anymore. Maybe it's an actual, you know, jujitsu move or something. That's why, you know, to me, warriorhood takes on a whole new kind of level of skillfulness then possibly.
1: Yeah, skillfulness. And uh, you have to be quick on your feet. And you have to be open to learning and uh, to taking on uh, new knowledge and new ways of doing things. I think that that's uh, the hallmark of a good warrior no matter what. You know, outside of the context that we're talking about it, if you talk about effective uh, soldiering in the Marine Corps, for example, to go back to that one, they, they exhibit all those qualities in the context of being a combat uh, instrument. You know, but if we're talking about it in the broader sense of, of – of masculinity and being a good human being in the context of, of a native community, you have to have that. And and you have to be, you have to manifest those things. And so for me, that's why when I talked about being able to accommodate and acknowledge paradox and, and hold these kind of a relativist, like you said, approach, but through and always rooted in uh, a self-conscious uh, exercise in uh, pursuing uh, these objectives in the value system and according to the basic principles of, of Haudenosaunee culture, uh, now. So it's not completely relativist. It's, it's sort of being open to challenge. It's being vulnerable. It's being humble. It's accepting critiques and, and accountability and so forth. Uh, it's respecting other people's ways and choices and pathways, but it's also that balance and saying, okay, I want to conduct myself in this way. Which leads to a more respectful set of interactions than the, the person who comes at it like one right way and I'm going to challenge you and, and push you away from your ideas and dare you to accept mine and, and all these kind of things. But, you know, it's it's still a line. You know, there's still a line there. And I think that's uh, unavoidable because we live in a, in a, in an ongoing colonial project where it's not a benign reality that we live in. Uh, institutions are not friendly. Uh, the objectives of the larger society are hostile towards us. And, uh, if, if you are just a relativist, you are a colonist. You know, if, if everything's equal, that means colonialism is valid. And so you have to draw, you have to be contentious. There's still, there's still the reality of being an indigenous person or an ally of indigenous people where you have to acknowledge the fact of conflict and that your staking a position and standing on the side of justice is going to engender a reaction from conservative forces or confused people among your own group or people who are unwilling to acknowledge or act against colonialism and that's a uh, that's where all this lateral violence comes in that's where the dysfunction in various movements it happens in all movements uh, but it's very pronounced in our own communities uh, backstabbing and undermining and all that kind of stuff that's that's you have to accept that as as a reality of politics and especially in a in in colonial reality that, that we live in right now and so You have to, that's, that makes it even more important to understand yourself in the context of your traditional culture and your identity. But, uh, that's one hand, but also the other hand is to practice that in the context of community. So to practice that in the context of the accountability that indigenous community provides. And so when it's it's one thing, and it is a small critique I have of, uh, of uh, academics and scholarship, and I've had this my whole career, you can read about, you can read my articles on warrior scholarship and all this stuff where, you know, the theorization of what it is to be indigenous or the theorization of what it is to be um, uh, an activist in, in indigenous communities is one thing. When you're doing it in a university environment where you're answerable to white people and and, and you go home and go home and, and it's all white people around. There's nobody holding you accountable. Uh, or you're the professor and you show up and, and it's all your students. I mean, is that really accountability? Um, versus going and practicing this and struggling through it in, in the messy way that we all do in the context of a community that is made up of, uh, uh, Grandmothers and aunties and younger women and young men and fathers and all these kind of people who are looking at you and have, have the ability to challenge and hold you accountable in ways that are real, uh, that impact you in, in every way. Your emotion, your, your financial status, <laughs> your, your social stability. Uh, all these kind of things. That's real accountability. And so for me, when I talk about these things, I, I make the distinction between, uh, theorizing indigeneity and actually taking that theorization and putting it into practice in the context of a real community. And uh, I mean, I've had arguments over my career. Uh, and I, I stand by this. I mean, I, I think I could have been more sensitive. <laughs> I get to use that word in the way I conveyed my point, but, uh, my basic point is I don't consider academia or government circles or art circles to be community. You know, that not in the sense that I'm talking about it. As an indigenous person, you need to be in the context of, of family, uh, of, of, of a, of a group of families that are bound together in a particular place with history running through it and a future coming forward. And when you're operating in that context, that's reality. It's not something that you as an individual can shape. You have to do it in the context of a family. You have to do it in the context of a community and people will look at you and, and, and judge whether or not you're a good person or a useful person in the context of that long scope of history of the current challenges and of the future. And it's not, it's not a, a boardroom or a classroom or a conference where, you know, people can come and go and say one thing and then go home and do the other and no one really knows or cares.
0: Thank you for this. You know, I really appreciate this. I mean, hearing how you've drawn this out because the image that comes to me, and I'm going to link it to at least my sense of this whole toxic masculinity conversation, is that so often it seems that the, I mean, the approach of it is, is it's it's a homeless approach, it feels like, to understanding masculinity because all of those actions that are deemed toxic let's say you know like a lack of accountability or like domination or violence against i mean other men or or partners and things like this you know that's toxic ego you know issues and things it's almost like demonizing the symptoms for a plant that has no soil like there's no soil of community like you said to actually create those accountability and even like nurturance that let's say we're just talking about a man now a man would need actually those feedback loops You know, and in history and place to really thrive and to really be to be checked in some ways. Right. And to be held accountable. And so without that soil, it feels like, you know, it's it's a doomed project to demonize the symptoms and say, yeah, we don't want that toxic masculinity, but no sense of but because we need to cultivate the soil, actually, of of community again which to me that's really where i like to point the conversation towards you know because i do feel it's a sort of very limited conversation and necessary to say you know these actions don't want them bad you know clearly Um, but without the conversation of the soil of which i feel so many of the indigenous guests i've had on this conversation have been able to point to it's because they tend to have more lived experience of actually being that way you know where so many of the northern ancestral peoples that came over including myself you know have don't have any lived reality of that anymore just a kind of longing you know echo um not to say it's gone but i guess i'm trying to say that that to me is this memory that needs to be cultivated you know once more and i'm so grateful to those of you you know like yourself who can speak from that from that lived experience and kind of reawaken you know that recognition again
1: Hmm. oh thank you for that
0: well i think it might be time to close our conversation today as, uh, as profound as it's been. And I wonder, is there any yeah, final words you want to leave the listener with, you know, on this conversation or, or around these themes that we've touched on today?
1: Yeah. I think that from the perspective of a person, my age, um, we've come a long way and there's a new opening in, uh, our culture and in our, our lived reality as indigenous peoples to create, uh, a future for the coming generations that really cuts through the most harmful aspects of the colonial legacy in shaping us as, as people. And we're talking about masculinity. So shaping us as men. Um, but the conversation, I think gets sidetracked a lot of times. Uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't do what we're talking about here in terms of what we finished off. It doesn't really put this whole struggle, uh, in the context of culture and land and nationhood and so forth. It puts it in the context of, of, of the healing discourse, uh, which is oftentimes too often shaped by individualistic objectives of, of feeling better and and rising above as an individual and being a good person, which are all admirable things, of course, but it's not done in the context of nationhood and the, and the, the, the still live struggle of decolonization for our people. And so, you know, that's, that's what I, tr- that's what I'm trying to do in terms of the work that I do is to kind of bring the lessons and the teachings that have emerged in the, in the last five to 10 years about the harmful impacts of as we we're saying, toxic masculinity to refine, to refine what it is to be a warrior and what it is to be ungwehunwe, uh, so that we can be better at engaging in the struggle for our land and for our nationhood and so forth. And to not think that the victory is, is just freedom from those, uh, negative impacts of colonization, but, that's the prep work that we all have to do in order to be better fighters for the rights of our people. And so it's that, it's that struggle that I still, I think is going to be the one that defines us, uh, in the long term as, uh, good ancestors for, for the ones to come.
0: Well, mm. oh, maybe so. Thank you once again for our time. ya okay.
1: Yo, you're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.